Hey, you. This is Hal Aaron Cohen. Uh, welcome to my podcast, Tales of the Road Warriors. Uh, today, we're going to be talking with my old buddy, John Michaels. If uh, you are from the uh, Philly area, you might have seen him on a show called Christina Cooks, which was on PBS for many years. Christina makes a lot of vegan dishes, vegetarian stuff, uh, gluten-free recipes, all the stuff I won't eat. <laughs> but uh, So uh, John played guitar on the show. She met him in uh, at the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville and asked her if he asked him if he would come on her show and play some songs. And he ended up being a regular there. He played on every episode, uh, and he's also a, a, a singer songwriter extraordinaire. I met him when I lived in California, Encino to be exact, and uh, he had recently come off a tour with the New Christie Minstrels. Oh, fuck. I totally forgot to ask him about the new Christy Minstrel. Sorry about that. But trust me, he was uh, with them for a couple of years, and uh, his musical influences are Jim Croce, Harry Chapin, and you can clearly hear that in his writing and performing. And both those guys would have been proud to count John as a protege. He says his personal inspirations are his mom, his wife, Jeannie, and his daughter, Jennings. In his bio, he says, quote, For the longest time... My sole concentration was on my music uh, and to pursue my music career. I thought I had to be single and uncommitted. Today I've discovered I can have both, and it's truly inspiring. Unquote. I can tell you, because I've known John a long time, and as one of his Facebook friends who reads his posts, he dotes on his family. Big time. Songs he's written or co-written include uh, Check Please, Grain of Salt, Stones, We're Fired Up, co a co-write with uh, Greg Crow, recorded for Titans Radio Network. Uh, Love Unspoken, recorded by Sean Kane. He's written with uh, Keith Urban. He's been paired up with a lot of uh, uh, well-known Nashville writers. He's got quite a track record. Anyway, uh, I've talked long enough. So let's uh, get into the uh, conversation. And um, I'm going to play a little bit of uh, John's music uh, leading in. Uh, the story behind this song he was on his very first date with a young lady, and uh, the the conversation was getting hot and heavy, and they were talking about, you know, hot and heavy stuff. And she leaned in, and she said, you know, if a guy wants to get with me, they have to marry me first. And then she leans back and kind of gives him this look like, so what do you think about that? So this is a song John wrote in response to that. Sitting in a cafe talking to a lady Having a discussion about S-E-X In her early 30s she was talking kind of dirty I was totally excited but a nervous wreck When she told me that before we'd ever get to the mat I'd have to walk her to the altar What I think about that Check please, quickly How much do I owe? It's time for me to go What she wants to do ain't on the menu How's it going, John? He's <laughs> doing good. How was your nap? Uh, Well-deserved. You know, I'll tell you something. A nap is like gold. It's like, you know, you just can't get enough of it. Well, I've always taken naps, but uh, for some reason, every day around between like four and five, I would say, 
my body just goes, okay, you, you've had enough. You, you've got to lay down now, Hal. <laughs> so, okay, body. <laughs> what, what, <laughs> what time do you find yourself going to sleep at night these days? Uh, about midnight, I'd say, on the average. But remember, yeah. when we were working at Poppy's, we probably didn't go to sleep until 4 or 5 in the morning. I know. If that. And uh, that was those were the days, my friend. Boy, can you imagine how quickly they've gone? They've come and gone. Those days go by so fast. And you know, like, how did you know Lisa Nemzo? She uh, played at the Blue Lagoon Saloon where I was bartending. First time I saw Lisa Nemzo, I was at this club in the Valley. I went to go see Clarence Clemens, you know, uh, big the big man. Never heard and, of him. And, uh, yeah. I bet he was very sexy, though. He was very sexy. I mean, he <laughs> kind of walked through the door and lightning and thunder would go off, you know. But um, I'll never forget, I was uh, I was there to see Clarence, and, you know, they op- she was the opening act, and she, and she had this 12-string guitar, and she was a harmonic just queen. I mean, she was a, just started big time on all these different harmonics. And I tell that exact same story because that was the first thing that uh, I was bartending at the Blue Lagoon Saloon in Marina Del Rey. Lisa Nemzo, right, right. L- Lisa Nemzo was one of the acts. And she, I don't know if she was the headliner, but I know she was definitely one of the acts that night. And when she went into that harmonic solo, I just stopped what I was doing and just looked, looked up and went, what the fuck? I just stopped yeah. waiting on customers because I was like mesmerized by this. So I'm like, how's she doing that? <laughs> that was it. And she did it. And it was like, have you ever seen Keith Urban in a small venue, like, like, like the blah, blah cafe kind of venue. Have you ever seen that guy play? I got he a great Keith Urban was... story actually, but I was going to save it. You want, you want me to tell you about Keith Urban in a yeah, really small the... venue? Well, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, he is, um, I would, I, I mean, I, I know Keith and I know Keith well, and we played together in many rounds before, you know, he hit the big time. And to sit there and watch him play a guitar in a small venue, like in a round, and he would he would be all over that guitar. He was a Tommy. That's where I got turned on to Tommy Emmanuel because Tommy was his, uh, you know, his his muse, if you will. Tommy Emmanuel was, and I've seen Tommy Emmanuel on a number of occasions. But go ahead, tell me your your Keith Urban story. <laughs> How well do you know Keith? Maybe you could do something about this. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, Keith and I, we, we knew each other really well. We wrote together and we did many shows together at the Bluebird Cafe and at Douglas Corner Cafe. So we had some really fun stuff. And between 1995 and 2000, the last time I saw Keith, you know, I, I did a, my, uh, I have three albums out of my own. And the last time I saw him, he came to my uh, CD release party for my first album at Douglas Corner. That's and that was cool. the last time I saw him. So that I'll was 2000. You. So that's 20 years ago. All right. Here, here's my Keith Urban story takes place at like maybe 94, 95 was about that. Um, I was working at the Starlight Room. It's a little dive bar on Cahuenga and Tahunga in yeah. Studio City. Mm-hmm. And it, there was a little taco stand. Henry's Tacos was right next to it. They had just passed that law too, or like even even little neighborhood bars. You couldn't smoke inside anymore. So me and a bunch of uh, the customers were standing outside of the bar. And, I mean, if you have 40 people, it's like there's nowhere to sit. That's how small this place is. Right. So this van comes driving, like cruising down the street really slow. 
And then all of a sudden, this guy jumps out with a guitar, and then another guy jumps out with a camera, and he's playing. It's like they're filming a video, like guerrilla style, you know? Cool. They're filming this guy, and so they're walking past the Starlight Room. We're all out there smoking cigarettes, like watching. It's like, what's going on? And he says to me, "Who's in, who's in charge here?" I said, "Well, I'm the bartender." He goes, "Oh, do you mind if we get you know get your bar? Some of you guys in the background. We're we're doing a video. I'm, I'm my name's Keith Urban. Like I, I immediately the, that name just got stuck in my head forever. And I'm like." Did you let him play? Did he get up and play a little? No, no, no. He didn't want to come in the bar to play. He just wanted to oh, know okay. if it's okay to, if we filmed right. while he's filming Outside. the video, if the bar's in the background and we're standing out there smoking. So, like, you know, we would be in the video. So um, I went back in the bar, but I, I said, yeah, if it's okay with these guys, you know, I don't mind, you know. But uh, uh, And then Haji goes, well, are you going to buy us around? <laughs> so... Uh, Keith goes, yeah, yeah, you know what? As soon as we're done filming this this scene, we'll, we'll come back. I'll come in and we'll, I'm going to buy you guys, everybody, a beer. <laughs> so we're like, uh, what a cool, what's so cool. So he never came back. No, so here's the thing. Now, that bar is not there anymore, but a lot of the people that used to hang out there now go to the chimney sweep. So I just think that's it would be cool. That's where you used to work. That's, that's where you used to work. Yeah. So if you see Keith... Just tell them, look, next time you're in L.A., stop by the chimney sweep, buy the bar around, and we're even. I think I'm going to write a song called You Owe Me a Beer, and I'm going to pitch it to them. <laughs> you know, I think that would be a great idea, you know, and, and it'll go viral. You owe me a beer, and it would be absolutely great. That's the way to do it. It's very funny. So tell me about your podcast. I think that's so cool. I mean, you, of all people, would seem perfect for having a really cool podcast. Okay, I have a face for radio, right? We all have faces for radio these days at our age. Having a podcast gives me an, an excuse to just call somebody on the phone and talk for a while. I think it's a great idea. I think a podcast, catching up with all your old friends, all your music friends, and you tell the stories and what they thought they were going to be, you know, 25, 30 years from that time when you were hanging out and uh, what the reality is. I think that would be kind of a cool little story you know what what you thought and what you know i always tell people that i thought by the time i was my age now i'd be a household name i just didn't realize it was going to be my mother's household yeah that line's making a comeback <laughs> it is making a comeback so and the other line that i've used i mean i had another line that was um <laughs> this is this was when i was selling insurance for aig about four years ago and i uh, it was actually a kind of funny line you know i write songs and then the follow-up line was, really, what kind of songs do you write? Oh, the kind that got me a job selling insurance. <laughs> <laughs> you know who I heard from today? Because I haven't spoken to him in forever. was David Gattay. I was looking at my message. Uh, and we, the last time that we communicated was back in 2009. And I was you know, just asking if he would be open to listening to some material that I wanted to pitch him. You know, I had some really strong material. And, and he, he did, you know, the way he replied was he just, he hit three icons, <laughs> like a thumbs up and, you know, star and a smiley face or something and never answered me. And I, I kind of just figured that, you know, that really wasn't anything he wanted to do. Oh, he but, sent me uh, that same three icons, except all I did was send him a, like a little wave, like a hand waving. It says like wave. Right, right, right. So he, did, thought, he, did he do that to you today? Yeah. Yeah. So because, I mean, I saw his post. He was laying there on his bed playing guitar and I actually I hadn't heard I have not heard him play he actually played on my very first 
record called Pay the Piper. And uh, I was going to I was going to bring park. up Pay the Pay the Piper because uh, probably the first uh, recording I recall coming from you. It was it was Pay the Piper. My gosh, 1987. I put out I did that whole thing and funded it and put it out on a vinyl and and uh, tried to release it and send it out to radio stations. And do you know the first station that picked it up? You'll know this. Uh, it was no, but uh, I can tell you the first stage you played it on. What was the first stage I played it on? Breakers Garden in Venice, the open mic. Break it, that it was called the Breakaway. The Breakaway, yeah, Breakaway Garden, sort of the Breakaway. And yeah. I played, I, but I played it. I played it acoustic. I don't think I played it with the band, right? No, it was just um, you and your guitar. That's what I'm saying. That's the first. Holy shit! You because the Breakaway. I was trying to remember the name of that club. I remember it caught fire. And you know why I was thinking of that today? It's because and 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 how you and I started talking. That name Matt Kramer came up from Lisa Nemzo. And Matt, and boy, I'll tell you, I don't know how much time you have, but boy, you talk about a story. I've got a, a Matt Kramer story. He, he was one of the very first, first guys to really give me a shot right. and let me that, open up. That's where I, I remember know? Matt from there, too. That's where I first met Matt Kramer. And, and, and a story was that, and the reason that the breakaway came to mind, I remember Matt gave me a night and the and the night that Matt Kramer gave me at my place was going to fall a week after the breakaway gig. You know, and I played probably at my place, uh, I'd say a half a dozen times. I, I'd opened up for Jackson Brown's singer, uh, Rosemary, Rosemary remember Butler. her? Right. I got, to, I opened up for her. I opened up for Ronnie Cox. You remember him? Yeah. I was there um, a lot of the, your gigs, man. <laughs> were you? I don't yeah. remember. Well, here's what happened. One night, and you may or may not remember the story, but this, it turned out, I turned the lemons into lemonade. I played the, I played at my place and very few people showed up. And I was like, I don't understand. I sent out 300 invitations. I dropped 300 invitations into my mailbox in Venice and this, and people were writing me, why didn't I get my invitation? And where was that? So after the show was over a couple of days later, I went to the mailbox and found out that the 300 letters had never been sent they were sitting in the mailbox oh my god so i i called this is where it gets really funny here i called the post office in venice and i complained and i got a form letter in the mail from the post office saying we strive to do our best and sometimes we fail and we're so sorry and please forgive us and you know that was it and i like this is bullshit you know i'm I, i want more than just a form letter i want a formal apology and if possible i want my money back and of course, people were saying that she can't sue the post office. I said, yeah, but I can do something else. So I called NBC News. Remember, they had this, you know, those guys that would go out, you know, somebody got screwed and they'd go to the... Yeah, the, like, the, like David you know, Horowitz business. was famous for that. That's exactly right, right. So I called them and told them the story and they sent somebody to my house. So this was great. They sent somebody to my house. And we sat there in my living room. They had the cameraman and everything else. And I said, look, I'm not here to try to just get some free publicity. I'm here because I'm really pissed. So they walked with me on camera to the mailbox. And then they showed the mailbox. And then we went back to the house and we talked some more. And they took pictures of my, you know, my pictures on the wall and my CDs and this and that. And uh, they said, okay, you know, this, the story will be on today at five. So at five o'clock, I sit down in front of the news and they may, they turned this into a five minute 
thing about John Michaels and how he was had this big night at my place and how he had sent the stuff in the mailbox and and and, no, and hardly anybody showed up. And then um, uh, they went to the post office and they actually spoke live to the postmaster at that station there in Venice. It's pretty big. Right. And he came out. He said, um, "I publicly want to apologize to Mr. Michaels." for us not doing our job and for affecting his turnout. And so then they went to at my place and they filmed at my place. And then I don't, I don't think they talked to Matt Kramer, but they went and they showed the whole thing. And, uh, Matt, and then it, and Matt saw it and he called me up and he said, dude, I was real impressed. You took, you made some lemonade out of some lemons and he gave me another night. Right. And then it was packed. And cool. so it was a really cool story. That, uh, well, that's a really cool guy, but um, I'm really glad that that worked out the way it did. I mean, you know what? I Listen, I, I can when I close my eyes and I start to think about all the fun times, gosh, I'm 50, I'll, I'll be 59 this year, and I was 20. Oh, and you know what? I was, I was 19 or 20. I was 19 when I started, and I told, um, I told uh, Fred, that I was 21, but I was actually 19. And uh, I remember, uh, let me just clarify he, that Fred uh, was the co-owner of the restaurant where we worked. Yes. He was and, the and, invisible and got, banker he, backer. Yeah. And, and, and we, and do you remember every, it was not every week, but many times during the week, uh, we'd get paid and he'd ask us not to cash our checks. And, yeah, uh, yeah, there were many times. Do you remember that? Yeah. Well, you know, a- after Poppy left, and they, you know, they were no longer partners. And Fred took over the restaurant. We remember we used to call it the Fred Onion. <laughs> no, nobody was really fond of Fred. Oh my gosh, it was, oh, it, it was, it was very funny. But I, he eventually let me go because um, I kind of uh, gave him a. You know, he would. I never wanted to to, to bus. I just wanted to sing. And uh, I was really a terrible busman. I remember Alan, Alan Mason, and Alan and I are friends now. We're friends. We've done some fun things together over the past. But he'd come up to me and said, "John, your job is not to sing. Your job is to bus tables so that we have time as waiters to get up and sing." <laughs> I yeah. Said, well, I said, the, "Here, hold this, Alan." And I go up on stage. <laughs> they, yeah, the bus boys were allowed to sing and all, but you, you really did have to take care of the tables first. So the waiters usually sang more than we did when we were busing. I mean, I have, I sucked at that. I did. I, I wanted to sing. I wanted to play and I was blonde, blue eyed, young. And Oh my gosh, you were one entitled motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Let let me tell you something. I, you know, like everybody else, I had to start as a busboy there too. And I thought I was king shit. I thought I could do no wrong. And one day Artie Brunner, who was like the one who trained me. And I I just thought, I'm doing such a great job. Everybody loves me. Artie comes up to me one day and goes, Hal, you are about to lose your job, and I'm only telling you this because I like you. He said, <laughs> when a table breaks, if you don't get there before I do, every time tonight, you're gone. But something clicked when he said that, and I, and I got into gear, and I like raced him to every table, and I beat him every time. And I still got to wow. play some songs, but I, I just realized that I was overdoing it on the entertaining. And actually, I liked it better when I wasn't playing as much because 
then it was there was something more novel to it. People looked more well, forward to hearing me when I wasn't hogging the stage all the time. Oh, I, hey, listen, I was a I was a stage hog, and and it was terrible. But I, you know, I was young, I was dumb and immature, you know, and it was just crazy. But boy, you talk about the stuff that happened and who we got to know. And you actually worked there a lot longer than I did because you worked at the one on Balboa. You know, I mean, both poppies were on Balboa, but that right. older one, you know, yeah. the bigger place. Uh, yeah. And I think I only worked there. I only worked there for about a month or two. And then we ended up moving over to that, you know, I think it was the flying jib. Yeah. Wasn't that what it was called? Well, it was, uh, and it, was, it, was just, it was over the bagel nosh and the flying jib was next door downstairs. Yeah. And I never, I didn't, you know, there were people that I, I mean, I hung with, I hung with you, with you at work, you know, for the few hours at work, but I never kind of socialized with you much after work until maybe a little later, but like I would hang out with Daniel McFeely, you know, and do you ever remember when, when I would throw a grape at Daniel and he would try to catch it from across the room. And then Daniel, Daniel came up to me and said, John, uh, this is going to be the last night that we're going to do this. And I said, all right, fine. And so, you know, I said, just let me know when you're ready and I'll do it. And so I went around to everybody and I, I, I'm sure, you know, if you were there that you did it, but I had everybody pick up a grape in the whole fucking restaurant. <laughs> I said, don't just, just don't let him know. Don't, don't let him catch on. And as soon as he says three, throw it, everybody in the restaurant. <laughs> that's funny. I think I missed that night, but that's very funny. I can see. Oh, and well, he, I mean, he got bombarded. Well, what was so funny was he got bombarded with all these grapes. I mean, from every angle, every corner of the restaurant, people were throwing grapes at him and he knows the story. And so I was driving a red Chevy love truck back then. And so to get me back, he went back and he went downstairs to where all the trash is and all the boxes that we used to take out. And he dumped everything in the back of my red Chevy oh. truck. So when I came out <laughs> two o'clock in the morning, it was full of trash. So garbage uh, in, garbage out, but mostly garbage, garbage in. Garbage. So those are, those are some of like some of the funniest things. Those were fun times, dude. I'm telling you. And, um, it was just, you know, that was a great period of my life. I'm sorry that it didn't, you know, I mean, it only lasted for me two years. How long did you end up, spending with poppy star before i i think you worked at high pockets or great american didn't i you? worked at great american got fired from ga ended up at poppies uh then he moved to the i was there for about a year or so and then we moved to um you know above the plaza in the plaza de oro shopping center where you worked and uh right. i got fired by fred similar to the way you got fired by fred he says how are you intentionally trying to sabotage me? I guess because I like dropped a couple plates a couple times or something, and like he was like counting the. So wait a minute, you got fired by Fred too? Yeah, he was a dick. Did you? Ever, did he rehire you though? No, I didn't want I, to be. I, will, I I got rehired once, and then he fired me again. So I got fired from him twice. Before you go any further, I need to. I just need yeah. to tell you. I need to acknowledge some things that you have done for me. I had just started writing some songs at the time, and you you helped me with some of the like arrangement. Well, that makes me feel good. I've always I always wrote, but I always was insecure, and I used to never think that I you know I had anything to offer. But you, you know what? I'm glad to hear that. That makes me feel good. Yeah. So when you moved to Nashville, I think that's a good move because then you got to collaborate with other writers, and uh, they probably helped you with your writing, and you helped with theirs, oh my gosh. and it was like a total I, collaboration. I always said that Nashville was graduate school when it came to songwriting, because you were writing with some of the best songwriters, and it wasn't the hee-haw kind of songwriters. I mean, it was 
you know, people that had songs that were on Barbra Streisand albums and, and people that were writing, uh, like, don't you, don't you want my body? If you think I'm sexy, you'd be sitting in a room and you'd be talking to a guy who's dressed up in jeans and a t-shirt. Doesn't look like he has two nickels to rub together to come to find out that he wrote those kind of songs. You know, right. and you don't, you don't know the songwriters, you know? And yeah. so, um, yes, Nashville, Nashville changed my life. And, Nashville for 20 years, you know, uh, really taught me how to craft a song. And, you know, I think it, it showed when I went, did you ever see me on the today show when I won the today show? So, you know, I think that Nashville gave me the edge because, you know, David Foster actually acknowledged it on stage, you know, on the set, you know, cause if you ever watch it, he, he goes to the next act after I finished it and he goes, what do you think of John? his song and they were like he goes yeah i think john just raised the bar but it's just you know nashville taught me how to craft and how to find those right you know you know really dig deep you know for the right lyric and and you know i would sit in a room and sometimes i would write with people and they'd say something and i just go holy cow where did you come up with that what are you that's just brilliant and then it just teaches you about you know uh, about flipping a phrase and things of that nature. And then I got to, you know, play music with really great musicians that would show me different things and really elevated me. But it's frustrating because in our business, as you know, you can have all the talent in the world, but it doesn't mean anything. You know, there's going to be a, a huge uh, element of luck and, you know, persistence. And, you know, I, I only had so much persistence. And then finally, when I got married and had a daughter, I realized I had to get a job. Just recently, um, I had uh, some really cool stuff happen. Um, I've been helping PBS television shows. Talking um, about the, uh, shark, the shark dives and, and the... Well, what, yeah, what happened was, uh, um, real quick story, this is a, a very interesting story. I was singing at the Bluebird, and I had just finished my first CD, and I was trying to figure out ways to market it, and I was doing a show at the Bluebird. And, and by the way, have you ever been to the Bluebird? Have you ever sang there? No, it's on my bucket list. But if you ever, if you ever uh, do, I know DJ told me he was going, he called me, but if you ever go, call me in, in advance and I'll kind of give you a little bit of insight to help you get onto the Bluebird. Okay. But the story was I was playing at the Bluebird and uh, I always had a good, good show at the Bluebird. I could always entertain a crowd. I was really good with an audience. And uh, about a couple of days later after this one particular show, I got a letter, an email from a fan and uh, her name was Christina and Christina had a television show on PBS and she wanted to know if I would come and sing on her show. And she was based out of Philadelphia. Her name was Christina Perillo. You mean her and, last name uh, isn't cooks? <laughs> no, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Christina Perillo, but Christina cooks. So, um, of course I, you know, I mean, I, I said, yeah, absolutely. Yes. And so she primed me, you know, that, you know, in, in four months, we're going to be shooting here in Philadelphia and Bala Kenwood and, all this other great stuff and you got to come up here and yada, yada. So about a month before I was supposed to come up there, she, she called me and she was really sad. And she said, I, I got some bad news. And I said, what? She said, uh, we lost our sponsor, you know, PBS has sponsors and we lost ours and I don't think we're going to be able to do our show. And my comeback was, well, tell me what you need. And she, I, I started priming her and hitting her up for some questions. And, and, uh, she said, uh, well, how are you, why are you asking me these things? I said, well, maybe I can help you find some money. And I said, I used to have another profession, you know, where I used to raise money. <clears throat> and uh, one thing led to another. And I, I got on with her husband and I said, here's the deal. If I can find you sponsors, 
I want a particular piece of it, of the, of whatever I get in commission. And he said, you know, I said, you don't have to pay me anything up front, but if I do secure, um, I want a commission. He said, no problem. So in about four months, I had raised close to $300,000 for them. And they were like, holy cow. Wow. Yeah. So, um, uh, they, the sponsor gave the money. I got my commission. I got myself out of debt. I flew up to Philadelphia. I was on the show and I did a song in every episode. That and I so remember. I remember. It, I used to watch the show. I used to watch it. Hear your right. songs. I'm like, let's see what so John's I written did, lately. Let's see what's exactly. So I did a, a show. Uh, I wasn't that crazy about her cooking because she didn't cook the kind of stuff I liked. But I, you know, I watched anyway because you never know. And I love to cook. But I got to tell you something. I was not a fan. And, you know, you had to eat seaweed and you had to eat all this other kombu and all this other stuff. And I remember on stage, I used to play the Tin Angel quite a bit up there. I don't know if it's still there or not. It's still but, there. Uh, I played the Tin Angel several times. But yeah. I remember I'd go up on stage and I'd say, you know what? Ever since I met Christina, I've eaten more seaweed than Flipper. You know, I'd always have these one-liners. <laughs> That's <laughs> <laughs> I laugh. I said, man, I said, there's nothing worse than a vegan. And somebody should give them a piece of meat because they're just honorary people. I mean, they're just mean. You'd be mean too if you went for a few years without any <laughs> meat. And and I would just give shit. And then like I'd be on the show and I would eat something and I'd have to go, oh, that's delicious. And as soon as they'd go cut, I'd be spitting that shit out into the trash can. It was terrible, <laughs> but it's all funny shit. But um, then... So, you know, pretty soon, um, you know, I found a niche, you know, in helping these shows. So to get to where I am today, um, I had, I had worked from 2003 or 2004 all the way up through 2009 doing PBS television shows. And, um, I was able to buy a home here and, uh, you know, to, 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 to really, you know, elevate my, my, my uh, lifestyle. And then we had the economy and we had the crash in 2008 and everything tanked and I couldn't sell. I mean, I, I could not sell water to a dying man in the desert. It was so bad. I had to leave the industry of selling and, you know, go get a corporate job. And uh, I went to Merrill Lynch and I was, you know, I got my series seven, my stockbroker's license and did that. And this all happened before the Merrill Lynch gig then? This was a while back then. Merrill Lynch was Merrill Lynch was in 2010. So in 2008, we had the crash. Long story short, I met somebody here in South Carolina who was with the PBS station here in South Carolina, and they asked if I would they, – they'd heard what I had done in the past, and they were working on a documentary called Fathers in America, and um, I ended up uh, um, taking on the gig, and uh, – you know, I worked for about six months on it, and I got lined up. Uh, the company Dove, you know, the the, the hand lotion Dove, the soap Dove. Sure. And I had gotten Dove for men and a foundation to uh, to to get really close. They were very very close, and turns out that the director, a really smart guy, he just uh, you know he he wasn't really, in my opinion, showing fiscal responsibility. And I brought that up to the uh, head of PBS in South Carolina, and uh, they decided to can the entire project. And I work on commission, so I got nothing for oh, that man. whole year of 2017. All that work I did, I got nothing. And to have that close, and these guys were ready to pop, and, uh, you know, because my payday comes 
not every week. It comes, you know, once every four or five months, I'll get a, you know, I'll get a commission check. Right. But so now I found a show. <clears throat> I've actually found two shows in 2018. One was called born to explore with Richard Weiss and Richard is the current president of the Explorers Club. And the Explorers Club is a huge club. It's an international global club that people like Neil Armstrong, Sally Ride, um, you know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, all of these major, major explorers and adventurers, they all belong to it. And uh, so Richard is the president and it's a beautiful show. So I got on and, and I was able to find him a big sponsor called Aggressor. And Aggressor is the largest diving uh, group in the world. I mean, literally, they have 18 or 19 destinations where they take you on these liveaboards. These are yachts. And people are on these yachts for anywhere from five to 10 days. And they go way out to sea to all these areas that you could never get to on a one-day land you know, uh, excursion. You have to be out there. And they take people to dive. And so, um, long story short, I became uh, friends with the owner of Aggressor, and one thing led to another. I introduced him to Richard, and I eventually closed the deal. And if that's not enough, the owner of Aggressor uh, heard my music, and uh, he was impressed. And he reached out to me and he said, you know, I've always wanted a theme song. You think you could write me a theme song? And I said, the fish shit in the ocean. You bet I think I can write a theme song. <laughs> And I, uh, I, I, I pulled out the guitar and, uh, I, uh, sat for a couple days and I wrote this, I think this incredible theme song. So he just, uh, he heard it just a, a week ago and he's just was just ecstatic about it. And, uh, so now I'm going to be flying out to Phoenix and I'm going to be recording it live with my buddy, Ray Herndon. I don't know if you've ever heard of Ray Herndon, but he's a, he's been Lyle Lovett's guitar player a lead guitar player for 30 years and he plays with Don McLean and he was in a group called McBride and the ride. And he's just done so much. And he's got a band called the Herndon brothers out of Phoenix with a country and Western bar called handlebar J. So, you know, Ray and I are very, very dear friends. I mean, he sang at my mom's funeral for Pete's sake. So we're very close. So I'm my, my music isn't dead. It, you know, it's almost like after winning the today show, it was like, you know, what is God trying to tell me? You know, um, as much as you may not be, you know, the next Barry Manilow or the next, you know, Dan Fogelberg, uh, you know, I didn't give you your talent. Yeah, don't sell yourself short, John. Your, your, your songwriting is really, really good. It, 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 well, it's never even been close to dead. I mean, you might have gone times where, uh, you know, hasn't you've been falling out of the public eye for one reason or another, but people... You know, the cream always rises to the top, and you got the cream. Well, I hope my cream's not. I hope my cream's not curdling. No, don't worry. It's not. <laughs> That's a funny line. That's a good comeback. I have to remember that. And they say the cream rises to the top. Mine's curdling, so I got to hurry up. That's, That's actually pretty funny. <laughs> but that's my. So I wrote this great. So I've been writing some theme songs. I wrote an awesome Christmas song. I don't know if if you heard it, but I was. I've written this incredible. It's the very first non secular song I've ever written in my life. Yeah, but I know you posted it. Me. it. Believe me, if you did posted you, it, you, I've heard it. I, I you know, did I, you, I keep did an you eye hear on it? you. Do you remember hearing? Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm I was so excited about this song, and it's a beautiful Christmas song. So I am writing 
And I am, you know, there were times when my guitar had more dust on it, you know, than the top of a ceiling fan. And, uh, but, you know, lately I've been picking the guitar back up and it feels good. And, and you saw on my Facebook page, you know, I took a, a bucket list trip. I treated myself to uh, this incredible dive on the, on a boat uh, in um, Mexico. And I got to dive, as you saw, with Gorgeous. dolphins and I dove with, with the manta rays. And it was, yeah, just, the, I was in, does this I was trip in, come with the cameraman? Place. Because I mean, the, the photography is gorgeous. No, no, no. I did. I have a really, you know, I have a nice camera set up. That's all and, you? Uh, actually, I, yeah, it was all me. Yeah, and, nice, um, nice well, work. Well, I don't know. I put on, which which film are you thinking about? Because there was one that was a 12-minute video, and that was a collection of everybody. And then, like, what you saw with the dolphins, that was all me. Oh, okay. I watched them both. So, so, okay, so the one, the, the dolphins, you, you did the filming. Okay. That was all, that was for me. And then the one that's a 12 minute, that was a collection of different uh, divers that they pull together and they make a 12 minute video. So that was a little bit more edited. I haven't yet had a chance to totally edit everything, but when I do, I mean, I got a lot of great stuff to, to show, but I mean, I've been wanting to, to get that out of my system, you know, a trip like that. And it was absolutely beautiful. And I also did a great white shark dive you know, where I actually got into a cage and dove with great whites. And so, you know, I mean, I have no complaints, um, you know, you know, though I haven't, you know, gotten some of the things that I, I set out to, to, to get, you know, I haven't been not rewarded in certain respects. I have this amazing daughter Jennings. And so Jennings, is she musically inclined? She's shown any signs of like following dad? That, well, yeah, but it's funny. I tell her, Listen, Daddy doesn't want you to go out with any boys that play guitar, you know. And uh, Mama, don't let she, your babies go out with cowboys. That's right. That's right. It's that whole sentiment. But you know, she wants to be. Uh, it's not like she's a natural at it, but she loves to sing with me, and she knows all the lines to my songs, and she's a great critique, a great critic, I should say. You know, I can play her stuff, and she'll tell me if if it's good or not. And then we have fun because when she's got projects at school, whether it's a poem or she has to do, like, for example, she had a science project where she had to talk about all of the, the planets in the solar system. So we, we know what we did together. We wrote a song uh, about, you know, that weaved all the different planets and we had to do it in French because she's in French immersion. So, oh. you know, we're always doing these really creative things. And so, yes, yeah, she gets into that and she's, she's learning about, you know, writing and what's good and what's strong and, and things of that nature. So, yeah, but is she, uh, you know, is she a 10 year old, 10 year old prodigy? No, she's not, but that's all right. You know, she's, she's, she's just the, one of the most awesome people I've ever met. She can do anything. And she, I mean, she's very smart. She's tenured. She's, she's an only child. And so, you know, her, her, her main influences are two adults, right? I mean, it's not like she has yeah, a lot what's of What's mom do? Mom is a, you know, she's, she's a top in her field in real estate here in, in Lexington. She's, you know, Lexington's a local community here in South Carolina. We're just a few miles outside of Columbia, which is the capital and which is the, you know, right in the smack dab middle of South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina is the, uh, like I said, it's the capital. So we're about, you know, 15 miles away from town. So we're, we're a suburb and Lexington's got the number one school districts in the entire um, state of South Carolina. And, you know, South Carolina's got some really beautiful, beautiful things. And, and uh, it's got a certain way of thinking in some respects. And, um, they, uh, it, but it's, you know, it's, 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 it's a beautiful state. I have kayaked, believe it or not. 
I'm a big fan of kayaking. I have kayaked from uh, the middle of the state all the way to the beach. And talk about, you know, it's like a, uh, it's, it, it's like a Daniel That's Boone. That's a lot of paddling, meets, John. Oh, it was awesome. It was like Daniel Boone meets, you know, Lewis and Clark. And I did it in, in, in eight days, but it was four days in the springtime, early spring, and four days in the late fall. So I didn't have to deal with bugs and things like that and went down into the, to what they call the low country where they've got alligators and literally I kayaked, I had a big kayak and there would be an alligator, you know, that would uh, be just swimming along the side or maybe in front. And uh, it was a very interesting thing, but I've gotten into kayaking and I actually learned how to whitewater kayak and actually do Eskimo rolls. And I've been through huge rapids where I've flipped and I've able to roll myself back up and they call that a combat roll. So, you know, I, I, I mean, hate I it when you're like the kayak rolls and then an alligator is right next to you and bites your leg. And I hate when that happens. Yeah. yeah, I hate when that happens too. And that's why crocodiles, I stay out of the water with crocodiles. Luckily, we don't have saltwater crocodiles up here in South Carolina because they're the ones that will come up and jump up and take a kayaker out of his thing. So, Ooh, his boat. See, I so was kidding. I didn't realize it actually that. happened. Damn. It actually has happened. It, there's a There's a guy that a guide and this was in Africa and he was taking a group of kayakers, whitewater kayakers down this river, like the Niombi river or something like that. It was a pretty big rapid and he went down first and he got down to the pool and he turned around to watch the other kayakers coming up and a huge croc, you know, the ones that you see that grab the big Buffalo, you know, that grab them, that a a croc like that jumped up and grabbed him, took him under and they never saw him again. Kayakadile Dundee. That's right, man. Uh, uh, it was awful, but... Uh, Speaking of which, well, you, did you ever get back to L.A.? Have you been there lately? I did go to Los Angeles um, with Jeannie and Jennings. To um, We went to um, L.A., and then we went to... My sister lives up you know, in Agoura in Thousand Oaks, so we stayed there for a night. And then my dear friend lives up in... Um, Outside of Victorville, a little place called Hellendale or Silver Lakes. It's it's up there in Victorville in the, in the high desert. Right. And then from there, we went down to San Diego and we spent three days at San Diego SeaWorld, you know, and the Wild Animal Park. And, and then uh, my wife and daughter flew home and I continued on to Ensenada where I went on that dive boat to uh, dive with the great white sharks. So oh. that was, uh, but that was, that was uh, the last time I was in LA was 2016. A lot of good stuff. And I was also going to tell you, you know, we're, and you wouldn't know this, but I proposed to my wife uh, and got, you know, down on one knee um, at the World Cafe Live. No, I did not know that. When were you at World yeah, Cafe I, Live? Yeah, so uh, it was, when was it? Because I'm sitting here. I, I'm actually. Did you have a gig talking, there? Like, what, what would have brought you? Oh, I played there. I played there. I played there several times. Oh. I played upstairs yeah. and I played downstairs. But I'll, I just want to read this to you real quick because I haven't uh, seen this in years. But it's it's on my wall here in my room. And this is let me read this. This is from the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Nashville singer songwriter who is a frequent musical guest with Christina Perello's PBS show, Christina Cooks, did the gig of his life Thursday at the yeah. New World Cafe Live on Universal City. The event was billed as Christina Perillo presents John Michaels. And the kitchen did a uh, tapas 
style menu of the Uptown, whatever it is, and it says Michael's, and it says here, Michael's cooked up a surprise. He proposed on stage to his girlfriend of four years, Jeannie Toot Michaels. Michaels lured Toot to Philadelphia by asking her boss to send her on a fake business trip. About halfway through his set, Michael sat down at the piano and lit a candle and said, the next song is about the best decision I've ever made. He sang a new composition. I bought a ring and it's in my pocket. I called your dad and we almost lost it. Now I'm bending upon one knee asking, will you marry me? You know, something like that. And then after the, after the song, he got, uh, he called out Jeannie, will you marry me? She came on stage, um, nodding and crying. They embraced. He placed the ring on her finger and then continued on with the show. So that was, that was in the Philadelphia Inquirer. That's and, uh, it was kind cool. Of, oh, it was very cool. And I played there several times. And I also, I also played on the NBC show. Well, a belated, you know, a belated muscle tough. <laughs> well, thank you. But, and, and then I did the NBC show up there, you know, the morning, you know, the, the NBC, they've got a morning show up yeah. there in Philadelphia. And so, I, hey, listen, Philadelphia is a fun town. My dad grew up there on Reed Street. You know where Reed Street is. And, yeah. And uh, so, you know, he grew up there. So his roots were there. And uh, Christine and Robert lived there in Philadelphia. And so, you know, I'd go up there for months at a time when we were shooting. And I'd have a great time up there. And it was it Phil Steakhouse or what was the, you know, what was the, the, the famous Philadelphia steak? There's, and, there's um, a few of them. There's Pat's and Geno's. I think it was Pat's. I think, I yeah, think Pat's, Pat's. Is, Pat's is the most well-known one. They're not yeah, the best the anymore, that, but they're still very well-known. That's the, that's the one that we went to. So we did, um, you know, so Philadelphia, I mean, I love that town. It is a freaking great town and, uh, too cold for me in the wintertime, but I do love that town. Yeah, I hear you. Very cool. I'm going to go have dinner and okay, uh, but, I enjoyed this very much. Before you go to dinner, one real quick question. Who yeah. should I call and what should I tell them? Um, well, you know what? I'm going to say you should call Lisa Nemzo and that she should give you uh, an interview. Fair enough. All right. I will be listening. Let me know. Send me a text uh, where I can, you know, I mean, when it's on your site and I'll go to it. I'll probably be talking to you before then anyway, John. So go eat. All right. Take care, buddy. So that was pretty cool, right? That was John Michaels, old friend of mine, getting caught up. Uh, let me just say this. If you like this podcast, there's a uh, tip jar on the website. You just go to talesoftheroadwarriors.com slash tip dash jar or tip hyphen jar. And uh, you can, you know, give a buck or two or a hundred or a million or whatever, however generous you're feeling at any given time. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about Lisa Nemzo and I had, as John suggested, called her and had a great conversation. So Lisa Nemzo will be coming up on uh, Tales of the Road Warriors, along with some really good people that uh, I've got lined up for the future. So get on the mailing list. You can uh, just fill out the contact form on Tales of the Road Warriors website as well. Well, you know, we talked earlier about how proud John is being a, uh, a husband, 
to his wife Jeannie and how he dotes on his daughter, and he's a family guy. Uh, this is a song he had written about uh, being a, a wanting to be a dad and having kids, and it's called "I Hear a Clock." We'll see you next week.